Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. In today's cast chat, we'll discuss some of the themes we've been exploring in our first and second cycles of interviews, the COVID crisis, the Black Lives Matter movement, and Me Too. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. My name is Rosanna Moore. As always, I am your host and welcome to our first official cast chat. So I am joined not only by one co-host, but by both the co-hosts. So a huge thank you and hello to Blair Kerner and Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, my loves. How are you both? I'm good. Hi, Rosie. Doing well. (laughs) Ah, this is so much fun when we get to talk to each other. So, as this is our first official cast chat, let's explain a little bit about what we're going to do. To break up our conversations with other people, we like to take a moment to reflect on things that are happening in society that affect the world in general, but in particular, how is it affecting us as musicians and as the title of the podcast uh, and our mission suggests, chamber musicians and composers. We will talk about certain topics that have come up in the last few sessions and also project uh, what is going to happen in the next four sections that you'll hear in the coming weeks. So without further ado, I am gonna pass you over to the delightful and wonderful Blair to deal with our first section. Thank you very much. Well, one of the things looking back and reflecting upon the first four episodes is this kind of underlying theme. Sometimes it was um, overt and very obvious, and sometimes it was something that we just talked about before we pressed the record button, which is obviously COVID-19, right? So as musicians, this is impacting us in a multitude of ways. So Loadbag mentioned they got stuck in Europe at the time with travel issues and had to cancel a few of their performances because they didn't really want audiences to come together in tight spaces. That was very mindful. True, but they did also admit that they were new music people, so having 50 people in a room was perhaps unlikely. (laughs) Yes, yes, the spreading out could exist, but, you know, we didn't have those rules just yet. Um, And then WinSync, unfortunately, had to cancel quite a few of their tours, including coming to Eastman and doing a few presentations and talks. So there's definitely some things that were obviously canceled, but there was also some things too that we're just kind of figuring out, okay, now that we don't have performances, what do we do as chamber groups? So, you know, we had um, Loadbang talk a little bit about their power chat. So they were doing their own little podcast series, talking to other composers and musicians in the field. WinSync was also doing lots of social media things where they would actually combine their repertoire of different people playing into videos and you could see them you know, socially distanced in their own individual rooms. I know Michael as a composer was updating all of his platforms from SoundCloud to his website to make sure that he had representation. And of course, Jack, you know, being as well online. So I'm curious, you know, here we are starting our own COVID exploration. So this podcast was even inspired by the fact that we didn't have as many performances and wanted to continue connecting with others. So Adam, I know that you had something that you did specifically around music education and a chamber festival that was socially distant. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. But in general, for the two of you, what are some things that 
COVID has either how it's impacted you personally as a chamber musician or some trends in the industry that you're starting to see. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was, this has been a really fascinating several months because right when everything happened with COVID in my studio, um, I do a lot of chamber music and, and it, uh, it was kind of crazy to make a sudden transition from being in person for chamber music to trying to do things online. Um, what was really interesting this year is that I was able to uh, work not only actually um, were all of these ideas mine, but I was able to watch what was happening in other chamber music organizations, such as the Chamber Music Connection in Columbus, Ohio, and um, other places to develop a whole system around uh, recording projects. And so uh, what I was able to do this summer was to transition my chamber music coachings to a hybrid model where we can do something socially distant outside, but we are also able to use recording projects. And that has been a really fascinating development in um, my teaching because I've been able to, um, number one, I've been able to take advantage of technologies that I had not really used before. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, I, most of the time when I was doing recording projects, I had someone else doing the recording part for me, right? And, and as a teacher, I mean, how often do we actually really go through a recording process other than, you know, here's a phone, <laughs> let's record and, you know, let's see how this, this turns out. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it was really interesting this year to kind of develop this process of working with things like Logic and GarageBand and um, having to learn all about microphones and um, helping students to learn how they can do things in a cost-effective way. And um, it's, yeah, it's been really fascinating on that level. I also know that you did, like you mentioned, outside, right? So like, I would love to hear yeah, a little bit more right. about that. As a wind player in particular, when we hear anything about outside, we're just like, oh, uh, yeah. there goes our sound, <laughs> right? Like we do it, it's fine, oh, no. and we can project, it's good, but still, whenever that happens, there's always a little nervous factor. So how did you manage to do some things outside, um, particularly with kids, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so I mean, that, honestly, that has been, mostly just working with tents and um, setting up, you know, having these these large tents in my backyard and having kids come over and, you know, sitting them down and saying, you can't move your chair. This is the only way we can stay socially distant. Um, but, you know, obviously the beauty of being a string player is that they can wear masks. So um, our rules around how close you need to be are, are different. But that said, I mean, a lot of what we've had to really work on in a way is that chamber music-y approach to trying to create one sound, trying to create one homogenous tone, right? And having to do it from far away. So that, I mean, I can say at least from my own coaching perspective, that I've had to do a, a lot of work to try to get them to hear a single sound from so far away. I mean, that's been a radical change for sure. It's certainly complicated. I, I think actually the most complicated thing that I had to work out was uh, I have a pianist in one of my chamber ensembles oh, and gosh. I and I realized I don't have a keyboard. So I had to get a keyboard and then I was like, wait, how am I going to connect this to power? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had to go through this whole experience of realizing um, and working out, okay, you know, okay, I've got to have a power source and this is outside, so I can't have a piano, like a real piano. And, you know, so anyway, that was, um, that was maybe the most fun thing to have to figure out. 
So from my perspective, uh, one of my main uh, things to do during COVID has been applying for a visa, which you both know very well. Um, just, I'm not going to talk that much about it. Most people who know me know how much of a pain in the neck that this has been to mm -hmm. deal with, even at the best of times. But also with losing a lot of work that, um, that I had lined up basically until the end of the year, I had to get creative as everyone else did. And myself and Blair, uh, we put together a really, really fun duo uh, program of pretty much all brand new repertoire. We did an arrangement uh, of a song by Florence Price and we actually went into a recording studio to record it so that it wasn't just performing in our living rooms. I love the performing in our living rooms um, concerts that everyone's been doing, but we wanted to do something that had that slightly uh, higher production quality. Mm. So a huge thank you to the wonderful Mark Webster for helping us with that. Talking of Mark, he has been in so much demand for things at the moment. Uh, in the summer, I normally go to the Lake George Music Festival. We went online this year as with everything else um and we did some covid recording projects so i was fortunate enough to play the krach quintet Jokra quintet for string trio flute and harp which is a piece i've wanted to play for years and years and years and this was put together with a really funky video that made it seem like we were actually in the park in lake george and it was really quite the uh, a quite a lovely way of working and again with a higher production value than people recording in their living rooms mm -hmm. as we're going through this a little more i think we're starting to learn a bit more how to how to make this a little less sort of <laughs> put together on a shoestring right it's, it was very very charming at the time but it's it and it, it will continue to be not everyone has access to buying fancy dancy microphones or anything like that but it's something that has been and very interesting and obviously as Blair mentioned this podcast this has been our our <laughs> quarantine passion project for want of a better term now uh, um, me and Blair had spoken about starting a podcast months and months and months ago and then uh, I was in a trio meeting with Adam and he also mentioned wanting to do a podcast and I went haha <laughs> let's join resources this might work quite nicely and it did which is wonderful so hopefully this will be a passion project that turns into something long term uh, and it's just been wonderful getting to chat to all sorts of different people from different walks of life. Yeah. And, you know, something that I'd be interested to hear about, too. And so, Blair, you had talked with us a little bit about the experience that you had. I think it was with uh, mm -hmm. June and Buffalo. Yeah. So talking about technology, that seems to be a theme. COVID equals tech, because if we can't <laughs> do it in person, we have to get familiar with technology. So um, usually in June, hence the name June and Buffalo, there is a composer festival that happens at the Buffalo at the university at Buffalo. There we go. And so this year, um, they decided to continue doing it in a hybrid fashion. So the composers stayed home um, and they took online master classes and lessons, but then they did invite a lot of the local performers. They usually have guest artists and the local performers. They didn't bring any of the bigger guests because of travel restrictions, but they brought in all the local ones. And we spread out on this massive stage. And because it's a 
chamber group or a slightly uh, a smaller chamber orchestra, so up to eight or nine people, we could spread out distanced. Um, you know, those who could wear, wore masks and we then recorded. But the main thing was that they brought in a massive TV screen <laughs> and hooked it up to a computer. <laughs> and had the composer's face plastered on the screen um, during a Zoom call. So they got to hear us play and rehearse and they can provide feedback to us and then we record it for them officially so that they can use it in um, future applications and, and for their future um, selves. So it was definitely a different experience and I would say because of the issues around Zoom and compression and so forth that they're just starting to resolve-ish now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they couldn't hear all the, the uh, little features and as you were saying we we're so spread out you know there's no homogeneous sound it's just all these little bits and we're like is the balance okay so we did the best that we could but it was still nice to be able to take part in that not only to provide back to the composers but it was actually a paid gig which you know didn't happen there hasn't been happening so it was it was nice to be able to do both of these and they got permission from the school to do it because there was nobody else around and as long as we distanced we were all right since then things are still evolving i'm sure and now that you know guests coming back to schools has been kind of eliminated that has been uh, transitioning into um different challenges but speaking of schools you know all of us are involved in some sort of higher education what are you seeing as kind of the alternatives to how uh, uh, music programs are addressing the social distance um, issues when offering courses so i'm in an interesting position at the moment because i this coming week so when when we recorded this uh, i will be officially starting my position at the university of oregon i've spent the last week going through all of the onboarding which normally uh, they give you some coffee and you get bagels and you get to meet everyone in person and instead i've been sat in front of a screen for hours each day going oh hi nice to meet you uh, but we because we're on the quarter system compared to a lot of places in the us before we restarted everything and said, nope, we're doing everything online for the first semester, mm. which I think was probably a good call because people are traveling from all over the country, all over the world, even uh, for the international students who aren't new for the first time. So that's that comes with its own set of issues and regulations, uh, but making sure that everyone comes in and um, they get tested as soon as they move into the dorms, etc. For music, though, we are doing in-person lessons as long as the student and the teacher are comfortable with it. And we're being set up in larger studios. I, our wonderful, wonderful uh, project manager, Thor, has just, that poor man, him and David Mason, have been going through everything and jengering and tetrising together everything that... Um, all of the teachers are going to do. So we can't change our lessons last minute because someone else is going to be in that room. Mm. Um, and that's that's quite interesting for sort of, but then again, we don't have the gigs that we normally do to say, oh, I'm out of town, I'm touring this week. If we don't have that, so we may as well keep up our teaching at the same time. Another thing I've been doing uh, is I am teaching two chamber music classes, one for the community level at University of Oregon and also for the two graduate string quartets. And the graduate string quartets, I'm helping them to put together uh, an outreach program. And because of everything that's going on, they're going to record it in a podcast format. Mm. Again, in influenced actually by what mm -hmm. 
Adam did with his students at Getty Fleur College last semester. So they have to put together two programs, one for going into schools and one for going into a, a retirement home. I know there are other places that you can take outreach into the world, but those are just the two we're focusing on for the <laughs> for this semester. And that's really exciting because I get to see how these students are going to work together and actually do something very creative will have a tangible product that they can then take out and they can send out to schools and to local retirement homes. And then hopefully something will come from it when we can then perform it in person again. Yeah, it's interesting. So the chamber music thing at the collegiate level is certainly an interesting um, uh, challenge to negotiate. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, here, one of the experiences that we've had is um, that we started uh, mostly residential uh, at the beginning of the semester and then our COVID cases started to climb. And so the college went through a uh, de-densification process, which ended up taking one of my groups um, away from the college, right? So what we started with thinking that it was going to be socially distant, but we were still going to be able to do something that was sort of like mm -hmm. it was normal, um, ended up turning into uh, what is now going to be a, a kind of large recording project um, where we're going to assemble everything in um, Soundtrap and we're going to be um, uh, putting that together as the the final performance, so to speak. But the thing that has been really good about that is that um, these uh, in, in this particular quartet's case, it's all um, underclassmen. And the thing that's really good is that I'm able to use this as an opportunity to work through score analysis, to work through um, historical research and how that applies to how we perform. Um, and I have to say, you know, that that's one of the things from COVID that I'm actually really excited about is that this has made um the the larger issues that we never have time for in a standard chamber coaching um that's made that possible right and it's made it more relevant you know because i can't tell you how often i start the semester with score analysis and then within a couple of coachings it's like okay guys we just have to get this together <laughs> you just right? have to get through it yeah. so, <laughs> right so i mean so it's it's interesting um that that has been a really um, positive byproduct and you know and then on top of that i have to say that the really cool thing is that with these recording projects students are working right because they don't want for that last track to be the one that they are remembered by yeah. right um and so you know in a lot of <laughs> honest ways, portrayals yeah, <laughs> right? that's the thing having a tangible product at the end of this is really important and i hope in the after times when this is a distant, very <laughs> unpleasant memory. I, I hope this is something that musicians all over the world are able to um, use going forward, because I think it's been a shock to all of our systems going, oh, I need to work out how to do this properly. Uh, properly. Popular musicians have done this for years and they're just kind of sitting back going, we told you so, you could have done this 10 years ago. Uh, and that's, that's something that, um, is good that it's given the classical sphere a kick up the backside. Well, and to be fair, I mean, just to follow up on that, I think one of the things that is really prohibitive or has been really mm -hmm. prohibitive about recording is just the cost oh, barriers, absolutely. right? And it's interesting because now that we're in a space where we, we kind of need to do it, um, the thing that's really good is that the demand is going to drive the costs for recording technology down, I hope. So, you know, I think that that's another really positive um, outcome from 
you know, something that would otherwise be seen as quite negative. In addition to obviously COVID challenging our classical industry and chamber music world, there also has been another very important thing that has been challenging us recently, and that is around Black Lives Matter. So Adam, I'm going to hand it off to you because I know you have some really interesting quotes and insights around this and how it's impacting our current industry and field. Yeah, so the thing that's been really uh, important this summer about the Black Lives Matter movement is that I think that we are seeing a resurgence in an awareness, I guess, of what of just the systemic inequalities that we have that we've just been willing um, to be complacent about. And I mean, we in American society, and uh, I, I would venture to guess global society more broadly, it, I think it's very easy for us to go through a, a time of change, such as what was happening in the '60s. And then to feel like, oh, you know, we've made all of this progress. How how awesome. Look at us. Let's pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, we go through a period of time where everybody just keeps pointing to the positive examples of, um, of you know, what happened before rather than recognizing, wait, hold on. We are still in a situation where this is, the inequities are still vast, right? We can't just relax. Um, so... You know, I think one of the things that was really fascinating for me was to um, read George Lewis's article, uh, Small Act of Curation. Um, and this is, um, George Lewis is a professor of American music and composition at Columbia University. And um, he does a lot of work with electronic and computer music and um, notated and improvised forms and um, computer-based multimedia installations, things like that. Um, but uh, What's really interesting, actually, is that he was the the feature of Loadbang's first um, power yes. chat. So, you know, hence the reason why he's kind of in my awareness at the moment. But um, the thing that I thought was really interesting about his article uh, was this quote that he uh, had by Sarah Ahmed. Um, and I'm just going to read it. Bear with me. Um, but she had written, an institutional logic can be understood as kinship logic, a way of being related and staying related and keeping certain bodies in place. Institutional whiteness is about the reproduction of likeness. Institutions are kinship technologies. A way of being related is a way of reproducing social relations. So this particular quote really struck me because, um, you know, when we think about institutions in classical music, mm. We think about ensembles, we think about educational institutions, we think about presenters, we think about festivals, right? We have all of these different um, institutions that kind of preserve what we have come to know as the music world, right? And I think that something that's really interesting is that when we really start to, to delve into what institutional whiteness means in our contexts, it really boils down to to several issues, right? There's the issue of programming, right? Are we programming composers of diverse backgrounds? The other thing that it comes down to is performer and composer selection. Um, are we featuring uh, performers of diverse backgrounds? Are we featuring composers of diverse backgrounds? And um, the last one is um, just the access to educational opportunities. And it's, it's profound when you start to look at these three different areas of institutions and realize, you know what? maybe we've made some progress, but it's really not as much as it should be, right? And if if we're looking at the general makeup of our society, it's really important that these institutions reflect. They reflect our societal makeup, right? They can't be predominantly white, but 
the thing that's really interesting is, is when you think about this, well, institutions are designed to preserve, right? And so something that we need to do is we need to radically change what it is that we are preserving. One of the things that I wanted to, to kind of talk about, and I'm, I'm going to ask Rosie to speak about this a little bit, the Jack Quartet and their work with the Jack Studio, um, they've been really reflecting on this um, challenge. Um, and so I was wondering if you could speak to us a little bit about what John shared with us about their work. Absolutely. So uh, Jack Quartet, who are incredible, they started an initiative a couple of years ago called the Jack Studio, which was to expand and offer three distinct programs, commissioning, reading and recording all under one application. Going back to what Adam, you said a couple of seconds ago about institutions and you think of the big schools and the orchestras and the presenters. They realized as an ensemble, and they are an ensemble of all white men, everyone they worked with came from a festival or from a school or something like that. And they realized that that was a huge issue. And so they launched Jack Studio so that they could work with people from around the world. They specifically say in the application that artists who are underrepresented due to reasons of socioeconomic or identity are especially mm -hmm. encouraged to apply, which is really quite wonderful. And it means that people who would not have the opportunity to work with a group like the Jack Quartet have this opportunity and also they get paid for it. There, there is a stipend, especially for mm -hmm. the commissioning project, there is a stipend of $5,000, which is that is a really nice amount for a composer. I mean, a lot of our colleagues who are just graduating now perhaps aren't getting commissions of that size just yet. Well, it's interesting too that you're mentioning, you know, the institution and you tagged on a, a few of them. And, um, you know, this the, the movement, you know, really started pushing through this summer and the reflections on different institutions and the responses. And then particularly for those that are educational that were then oh, going gosh. to be coming up in the fall yes. were incredibly varied or very interesting to reflect upon. Right. And some of them, you know, acknowledge something. So there's, you know, a, a competition for bassoons and oboes that comes out and um, they put out their repertoire list and within probably 24 hours, took that repertoire list down, reassessed, and then put it back up because they realized that there was no representation in that list whatsoever. Mm. But it was that acknowledgement and that moving towards a better, more inclusive world that was really appreciated. So there mm -hmm. may have been some stumblings along the way, but they acknowledge that that's a gap that they need to fill. And similarly, you know, Meg Quigley, here I am as a bassoonist, so Meg Quigley um, <laughs> is a, a bassoon competition and specifically uh, for females, but um, they did a whole summer series and every, you know, few days they were pumping out a bunch of different webinars around different topics and they brought in composers of diverse backgrounds, they brought mm -hmm. in performers of diverse backgrounds and had these conversations, particularly in the bassoon realm. So it was really, really fascinating to see people starting to tackle these issues and some of them more immediate than others, you know, educational institutions are a little bit larger and probably having some challenges to figure out what does that mean for them in their curriculum. Of course, individual teachers can change things up potentially in their class, but okay, but what exact classes are being assigned and who are the representation amongst the faculty as well as the student body and, you know, all of these things and, and questions and challenging um, uh, ideas that they have to um, digest and then figure out how they're going to move forward. 
Well, and it's interesting too, because I think that especially in those types of institutions, large educational institutions, colleges and universities, I mean, they have, there's all of these issues around, you know, well, financially, you have to come up with the money to bring in new people, right? And, or you have to wait for people to decide that they're going to leave and they're going to retire um, before you can really start to tackle those things. But the thing that's also really good is that is is when institutions are starting to think, well, okay, some of these issues are more systemic and are going to take longer to address, but we need to just keep those in mind as we move forward. There are other institutions, and I think that it's really interesting to look at community music organizations um, and, and the work that they are doing um, to provide access in the first place so that what we are doing is increasing the number of people who are going to be eligible for these types of jobs by the time they get there mm-hmm. in 20 to 30 yes. years, right? So the thing that's really interesting, you know, one of the organizations that I've been fascinated by is Community Music Works, and they've been active now for, um, oh, I don't even know, like 20, 25 years. Remind me where that's located? It's uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. Right. And um, and the thing that's been, well, it's and the thing that's really interesting is that, you know, they have really been integrating, performing, and teaching the social justice for I mean, many years now. And I think that the the fact that we have these organizations that already exist is a really positive sign because those organizations can lead the way in creating more organizations like them um, that will continue to do the types of work that they do. And um, I just, you know, I, it, at least when it comes to chamber music, the thing that I'm really looking at is who is leading the way and who needs to be leading the way and how can we support those efforts so that eventually when it does percolate up then we will have uh, these institutions that are reflective of the mm-hmm. society in which we live i also would be remiss if i didn't mention that we have um a an episode coming up here on castle of our skins um which is run by um, ashley gordon and anthony green in boston massachusetts and something that i'm really inspired by with the work that they do um, is that they are they celebrate black artistry in all of its forms. So one of the things that they are doing is tackling inequities uh, with a cultural representation when it comes to composers. And they're showcasing black artists and historical figures um, in their educational workshops and lectures and um, interdisciplinary concerts and things like that. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to to say that. Um, our listeners should definitely be on the lookout for them um, to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. I was chatting with one of the board members of Five by Five a couple of months ago, and they were starting to sort of really, uh, they've always been very good about having diverse programming and diverse commissioning, but they actually went and looked at what the percentages were in American society. And they said, okay, you're, I think they were actually lacking in Latino or Latinx mm-hmm. uh, representation. So they, I believe, are working with Miguel Delegia in this in this coming season. But they they actually looked at the percentages of what, uh, so how many male to female. Uh, yes, yeah. I identity. Sorry, I shouldn't say male to female. Um, uh, what percentage of genders and representations and looking at race as well. And I think that was. Definitely, perhaps it's a little cold in some ways, but it means that they're also always trying to make themselves better and always trying to make sure that they're representing the sort of everyone in society to some extent. 
Well, rather than calling it cold, it's removing biases, yes. right? In the sense right. of, you know, data, although yes, numbers are never the greatest thing to do and statistics aren't Certainly wonderful. not with humans. But <laughs> exactly, right? There's definitely an emotional component here. Yeah. But data helps to remove some of those things that challenge us, right? So, um, and, and thinking about, you know, um, being much more aware and opening that awareness. And speaking of, I remember we... Uh, recently I talked about this, um, mm -hmm. you know, and about biases in general, was this whole concept of also, you know, removing the screen in the audition process? Wasn't that right. something else that we were mentioning, you know? I so was like about to bring that up. So uh, there was an article in the New York Times, we will link it down in the show notes, which was from Tomasini. And it was to make orchestras more diverse End blind auditions and orchestral musicians went haywire for this people said yes this is a great idea other people are going no that's really dumb actually one of the best responses that i read was from the principal cellist of the louisville orchestra nicholas finch he wrote a piece for the spectator uh saying hey don't end blind auditions this is the only reason we have women in the orchestra and you need to go and look at this from an education level the issue is that playing a musical instrument it's really expensive. It's, it, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a harpist. So, I mean, the, my, my instrument's definitely worth more than my car, well more than my car. And, and that, but even pursuits, and anything is expensive. Even a plastic Barbie recorder is an investment to some extent. Mm -hmm. And it's more the fact that we need to work from the education level to make sure that everyone has access to this music and if they do want to go and pursue it we need to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to do that and that is how you're going to end up with more diversity in orchestras and it's going to take time it's going to take a couple of decades for these initiatives to actually bring forth the professionals and just for our listeners who might not be as aware of the audition process i'll just explain quickly what the blind audition is it's miserable. Like, there's a spot, <laughs> let's say a violinist spot that's open. Um, you get invited to go physically in person to audition and there's different rounds. And it usually happens in some sort of large hall or space. And there's a few judges out in the audience. But to help with this idea of inclusion and also just so that biases potentially wouldn't be initially put on the performers, there is a screen in front of the judges. So they literally can't see who is walking out onto the stage. They've even gotten as far as putting rugs down on the stage so that you couldn't hear if they were wearing high heels or not because that was even deterring so yes. the point of this was to to put the screen up so all you care about is how the performer is playing and that's what you're getting adjudicated on nothing else and so obviously these auditions are blind for for a reason but eventually that screen does get taken down right yes. so by the last round when it's the down to the finals they do take it down so they do see you so there is some you know uh, conflicting feelings around that. Why take it down in the last round? You know, what's the purpose? Um, and, and understanding that process and how that's changed or could change potentially who gets hired. So just because I, I've probably gone through this process a little more than you both have. And it, it's certainly not my favorite thing to do, but I nope. understand why the screen is there. I also understand why we don't screen the final because I, much as you do want to aim to have a really diverse orchestra, you do also want to make sure you have someone that is compatible uh, with people you're playing with. And I, I, it's really difficult because you you want to make sure that 
as an orchestra, you are collegiate with people as well as being a stellar player. And that's hugely, hugely important. That's something that we struggle with, with the orchestral audition thing. If you just have a bad day, you can have traveled halfway across the country or halfway across the world, depending on what Again, the audition money, is. education, yeah, Money, education. And I, I think that's a huge issue because it's some people can claim it back on their taxes not everyone can and it it's a broken system but it's the best thing we have at the moment well and i think you know the other thing too that's important to remember all about all of this is that there are there are many different ways to skin a cat so to speak right hmm. and if the if the issue is representation, then really what we need to be thinking about is, well, if it's not the blind audition, then maybe it's something else. I think something that's important for us to think about is that, you know, from a chamber ensemble perspective, obviously, there isn't really that blind audition um, mm -hmm. process, yeah, right? No, I you mean, just work with your friends, pretty much. You work with the people who you get along with, at, at least initially. And then, obviously, some of the groups we've spoken to they have gone through an audition process and hired new people but yeah right but i mean one of the things that i think is really important as we're you know kind of moving forward in our thinking about whatever an audition process might look like or whatever you know bringing people on might look like is that there are many different people who come into the the experience of chamber musicianship right there's mm -hmm. the composer there are the performers there are um who, the people who you work with um when it comes to um interdisciplinary experiences and things like that right and so i think that one of the things that's really important for us to be thinking about is that we you know what we all need to be doing right now is to be thinking okay what are the stats? What are what are the numbers that i'm working with right now? What what am i coming to the table with and what are my own current biases that I'm battling? And how can I address those things as I move forward to create a more equitable world, right? And that may be, even if you are an all white ensemble, then maybe what that means is that what you're doing is you're investing your time and your energy in really promoting the music of uh, non white composers, maybe what you're doing is going into um, uh, schools and providing opportunities that are free of charge just to make sure that you're you're reaching everyone and, and providing these opportunities for access that students need right maybe what you're doing is you're donating part of your proceeds towards mm -hmm. instruments for for children who are in need right, right. Um, there are many different things that we can be doing and thinking about as we try to think about addressing um, systemic. And inequities. one of the things I would like to add to that is when you're doing it to be authentic in it, right? So right. Rosie and I are currently prepping for a presentation we're going to be giving about how to commission and how to build authentic relationships with composers. Because whether it's working with composers or other artists or connecting with a local organization or donating money, you want to make sure that's true to your um, mission or true to your ensemble etc so that it doesn't risk of a okay we've got the one representative person on our our cd that we're producing out and then becomes tokenism right, right? right. so it's that authentic bit that we really want to stress as well it's not just what can you do but what can you do that would be authentic to your ensemble or to yourself that you can contribute to and not just pick up the first thing that you see or the first idea that gets thrown your way such as just repertoire what else can you do that's authentic to your group i think that's great um 
just to wrap up this segment, I wanted to quote a little bit of Amy Williams, who is going to be one of our um, guests on episode seven. She said, this is not a time to choose or not to choose to be involved. Our very existence as American society is dependent on this. Artists have to take responsibility, especially those who are in positions of privilege. And I, I think that that's something that certainly we want to take away um, as we all move forward as artists in what it is that we are doing and how we can um, address these issues. But on that note, um, we were going to go ahead and also talk a little bit about um, the Me Too movement in music, specifically um, towards uh, some of the topics that we're going to be talking about uh, for the rest of the season. So I will turn this over to Rosie. In episode six, we chatted with the incredible group Twelfth Day, which is made up of Esther Swift and Katrina Price on violin and harp, and they both sing as well. They're both wonderful, wonderful, wonderful folk musicians with classical backgrounds. After we recorded that episode in the last few weeks, there was a um, upsurge of something called the Bit Collective and the hashtag Trad Stands With Her, which is the traditional Scottish music's um, version of the Me Too movement that is coming out. And I, I've watched a number of things that Katrina and Esther have been involved in with regards to this. And uh, Katrina actually mentioned that part of the reason why this has been brought up is when you're a folk group or a jazz group in particular, you're going into bars late at night and it's mm. uh, it's a little dark and dingy. A lot of people have been drinking and it's something that kind of lends itself to perhaps there being an abuse of power in various spaces. And there have been some very strong, very, very brave women who have come forward and kind of had to risk their careers by calling some people out. And it's horrifying that we're in 2020 and we're still having to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it's such a shame that this is still an issue. So I do recommend that you look up the Bit Collective. They are a, um, a group that are sort of making resources available of what to do and how to deal with certain these things, certain things. And the hashtag trad stands with her. This um, lends itself to the music that 12th Day write. And something that they mentioned in the episode is that they did a lot of arrangements when they first started playing together in college and in their first couple of albums. But they've now become more comfortable in themselves as they're both in their early 30s and they've gone, yeah, we have high-pitched, light female voices. Yeah, let's lean into that fact. Why should we be, we be afraid to use our authentic voices? And their music that they've started to write has been sort of, uh, to me, has been folks' response to pop music. So it's in a folk style, but they start to deal with aspects of what is it like to be a woman in your 30s in 2020? Now, um, at the same time, the in the last couple of days, review that has come out, for want of a better term, uh, from the Curtis Institute with regards to the allegations made by Lara St. John, who is a wonderfully well-known violinist, who had been raising issues with the late Yasha Brodsky for decades and decades and decades. And they finally come out and gone, oh yeah, those allegations may have held some, or do hold some water. This woman had to wait for decades to get this. And obviously, uh, Yasha Brodsky has now passed away. This is an issue that we're, mm -hmm. we're still coming up against, that we're 
as people who are female identifying in particular, but it's not just limited to that. Mm -hmm. We are having to take so much time to actually be taken seriously when there's an allegation, which is really terrible. And the the distinct power play that comes between student and performer. Going mm. back to Twelfth Day, there is a new piece that has been written uh, called The Music Lesson, which is for speaking harpist. It was written for Esther, but I, the, the composer Neil Thomas Smith very kindly sent me a copy to proofread. And it's really harrowing. My theatrical harp stuff is normally weird and funny and ridiculous, but this is about basically being, oh, I was 10 years old, I was 14 years old. And it's really quite a harrowing piece. And when you actually listen to the words that are being said over this really beautiful harp line, and that is something that I, I hope is going to draw a lot more attention to this. So I've just spoken a lot about Twelfth Day, but uh, one of the conversations that we had, unfortunately not when the cameras were rolling, was with the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester. Blair, could you talk a little bit about that conversation that we had off the record? Of course. So in line with kind of this mindfulness of, you know, women in music, after we had completed with the Society of Chamber Music Rochester, which is run by a couple in Rochester, um, oboe and violin power couple uh, of the RPO, the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And, you know, they were talking in their presenters and they were talking about, you know, um, mixing up who gets to play with e mm -hmm. in each concert, as well as mixing up the repertoire and, and the composers. But then at the end, they, they just flat out said, Blair Rosie, what are some women composers that you would recommend? Because, yes. you know, they're doing their research. We mentioned a few and like, yes, we're in conversation with them, you know, and trying to, um, you know, bring them in, but also acknowledging that, you know, they don't necessarily have all of the answers and that, you know, as young females ourselves, they were leaning on us to say, okay, who do you know that might be interesting? And if not composers, who are some people that you might want to bring in that would be a good representation of women in, in our, our field or women that were powerful in some way or another? Yeah. It was a really Absolutely. interesting conversation to have when they were just flat out acknowledging that this is an area of growth for them and they're looking for some support. And that was really, really nice to see. Yeah, I, I was honestly just, I was so chuffed. I was like, you're asking? You're, I know. The, con you're <laughs> the concert mistress and principal oboe at the Rochester Philharmonic and you're asking my advice? I was so chuffed. <laughs> well, and I mean, just think though, I mean, that's, I think that's a really clear um, sign of what we were talking about in the BLM segment about the idea that, you know, if you're not going through an educational institution where that type of programming is part of your normal experience, how are you to know that those materials without having to go and do all of that extra research exactly. and, you know, asking the people who have done that research for their ideas and suggestions? Yeah. And, and I think just not being afraid to ask questions is a really important thing. If someone doesn't want to answer a question, you're going to have to deal with it. But <laughs> being cognizant and being uh, being available and being willing to learn about any of these issues as they come up so anything that we've covered today and there's a multitude of other things that we could have covered is so so important so starting to wrap this up we've got to the promotion part of our 
podcast, uh, our little discussion today. So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about who is coming up in the next segment? Yeah, so um, the upcoming episodes are going to be, uh, episode six will be Twelfth Day, episode seven will be Amy Williams, episode eight will be Castle of Our Skins, and episode nine will be the Society for Chamber Music in Rochester. Um, and then we have some really exciting um, guests for you for the third cycle that we're going to hold off and let you know about in cast chat too. You'll just have to check all of our social media. So if you are not following us on social media, you should be. Uh, we have a Twitter, which is SW Chambercast. And you can check our Facebook and Instagram, which is at Soundweaverscast. So my dears, thank you very much for this really enlightening conversation. And thank you, dear audience for listening to us and we hope to see you in an episode soon thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast if you enjoyed our show please subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify stitcher google podcasts and most other major podcast platforms we hope that you'll follow us on facebook and instagram at soundweaverscast and on twitter at swchambercast where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.